0: You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Austin Petersmith, founder and CEO of Racket. Austin, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited we get to uh, spend some time together today and chat a little bit. I thought we'd uh, you know, rewind time and start off by talking a little bit about your background. So how did you initially get your start in media and technology?
1: So the very first job I had in, in media was an internship at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Um, and I was there in fall, the fall semester, 2008, um, when I was in college. And I had such an amazing time there and um, was like so inspired seeing um the way that they were reporting the news and creating comedy and doing it in a way that like blended those two together so well and um and it inspired me to become a journalist and so then i ended up going to northwestern for grad school to uh to study journalism and um that was kind of like how i ended up in media becoming a reporter and then i was interested in technology forever um and ultimately i think the thing That pushed me to move kind of away from being a journalist and toward technology. There were a number of reasons and I was drawn to it kind of naturally, but, but one was just the fact that I took out monster student loans to study journalism. And then I learned that working as a journalist was going to make it nearly impossible to ever pay those loans off. And, um, and so that was a big part of it, but then also I really, really was drawn from a young age to technology. And so I was excited to go kind of make that shift.
0: Yeah. And in many respects, technology has fundamentally changed journalism and the economic imperatives that drive the journalism business, right? So the two are, are closely linked. Totally. Yeah. So let's talk about the Daily Show internship, first of all, because that seems like a dream gig for someone in college to land. How did that come about?
1: So I just sort of sent an application in. Um, I think they get a lot of these applications. Um, I had a a friend of my brother's worked on worked for Stephen Colbert's show, and so I think that I sort of got like a uh, maybe like they put in a good word or something. I don't I don't really know. Um, I imagine they get tons of these, but I tried to write the most absurd kind of cover letter with my resume that I could, and so I like to think that that's what um, that's what caught their attention. And then yeah, and then they they did interviews. It was they offered to do a phone interview, but my brother was living in New York, so I went out and interviewed in person. And um and then they offered it to me so it was a group i think i think it was like 12 of us and they always each semester they would have like a new group of 12 interns so it was a very kind of established program and it was really cool you rotate through all these different departments and and roles so you get to see the writing room and you get to see uh the work that like production assistants do a lot of what the interns ended up doing like would be running around new york to get like uh footage that they need from like some random video rental store is how it was done back then. Um, or like a random prop that they needed. Um, I remember one time like going to 10 toy stores in the same day because I needed to find one of those like wooden paddles with the rubber red ball on the elastic string uh, that they needed for like something to show how the economy was crashing or I can't remember what it was, but some reason that they needed that prop. And so it was like, go find this in Manhattan. And, um, yeah. And so, that, it, yeah, it was a huge range of different things, but such a such a cool experience, because I just felt like I was seeing people in their prime doing just unbelievable work um, that they were all so proud of, and it was during an election, and so it was like such a, a time that there was so much attention on the show, and um, yeah, it just it just like inspired me, and then also was so cool to just see how normal, it's like you see it on TV, and it feels like there's like so much to it, and that it's like just this major like I mean, it is a major production, but, it, but it's also just everyday people who are, are creating this thing that's like so amazing every single day. And so you get to see how like there's a level of normalcy almost to doing
0: work that is so impactful like that. Just another day at the office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very cool. No, it sounds like uh, such an inspiring experience. And then it sparked your interest in journalism. So you go on, you go to grad school and you become a journalist. What were you covering? What were you writing about at the time?
1: So I was, I, I, the Northwestern program, um, has you go to Washington DC for the, for like the last bit of the program. And so I was, while I was there, I was reporting on politics and things. I was just doing like kind of freelance stuff and then, um, and then continued that. So I, yeah, had never, never ended up with a full-time job as a journalist. Um, and, but I was doing, um, a number of different freelance reporting gigs for, um, mostly covering Capitol Hill and things like that. And. Um, and then, yeah, and then around then is when I um, found my way to Silicon Valley.
0: Nice. So in 2014, you founded Read This Thing, which was a curation-focused email newsletter, which was later acquired by uh, Inside.com. What inspired you to launch that as your first venture?
1: Yeah, so at that point, I was kind of my day job. I was working at a startup doing um, sort of developer evangelism and community management. And, um, and I really, really liked it. And I, um, but the kind of. I missed working with the news, and um, and so it kind of started. I was I would often just send interesting articles to friends, and I was like, oh, maybe I could just like make this a newsletter that other people could subscribe to. And so I just started like, then and, and I, I the idea that I came up with is I'm going to send it Monday through Friday once a, or once a day Monday through Friday and link to a single article every time. So the idea is like, I'm just going to send you something that I think is really fantastic. Um, and so read this thing. The name's pretty literal um, and made sense. And so I set up the .com and um, and created a Mailchimp list or whatever and let people sign up. And then and then it kind of just like spread. It never became massive, but um, but I think by the time that um, that it got rolled into Inside, I think it was like twenty thousand subscribers or something. And so it was like in two years it,
0: it grew to that. And which is big, um, yeah. right? In the in the days before Substack and everything else, like that's yeah. impressive. Yeah
1: yeah and so it, it was like it, in terms of content that i was creating it was really lightweight because it would be like i i write two sentences about why i love this article and then i share it but i was sharing a lot of like really long form stuff but then it was just anything interesting sometimes i would link to like creative visual storytelling or um or like data journalism or um or some piece of journalism that was that just like had an impact on me for some reason and then other times it was like yeah just a lot of like Long-form is really fantastic writing, and um, yeah, and and it was just a really fun kind of way to um, to get
0: experience just building something on the internet and putting it out there and seeing how people respond to it. Very cool. So, had you always considered yourself an entrepreneur, or what you know tugged at you to to launch that business? Um, I definitely.
1: I definitely like always. Yeah, I guess I probably always thought of myself as an entrepreneur to some extent. Um, And I like I did have businesses in high school. I had like a pressure washing business that uh, with a friend called Blastmasters that actually like did did pretty well for for a couple of summers. Um, We had an, an amazing growth hack, which was that we would if you could convince your parents to hire us, then we would buy you a case of beer. And so we just like spread that around and um and people would yeah, that, that covered all of our lead gen and people were getting getting their parents to hire us to to um wash their their decks. And um, I don't know. So yeah, I think I always like I don't think I ever thought of it in a really narrow way as like my career will be building companies. Um, but I think I always definitely thought of entrepreneurship as something that would be a part of my life. And then and then with Read This Thing, I think it was like I didn't, I felt not ready to go like start a startup, um, and raise money and do all of those things. But I also felt like just this draw to create something and, um, and it turned out to be a really good experience for that because it helped me kind of like learn about like, um, well, I mean, the actual technical side of, of like, I had been kind of learning software development. I didn't build much software for read this thing, but it was like, um, you know, actually putting something out in in production is a totally different experience than than doing you know whatever else code academy type of thing and so um that was a pretty amazing part of it and then yeah and then just like um seeing how people respond and like getting angry emails from people that are like i tried to unsubscribe and i'm still getting your emails and and like all of those experiences just are were like so cool for me and so i was just having so much fun with it never really even tried to monetize it it just was like a fun kind of thing and helped me i think kind of find my um, legs as an entrepreneur, I guess. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, it's uh, evoking a lot of memories of me starting this podcast back in 2015, which was pre you know anchor like out of the box tools to, to launch your own podcast. So I was like how do I record audio and how do I edit this thing and how do I you know get it up um, on some sort of RSS feed so people can listen to it. And it was like you know going through that process of figuring out how to start something, a creative enterprise from nothing, was challenging but also rewarding and it was this was before i launched my first business paladin and it kind of builds that muscle of doing something new right which i think like as adults we are more and more reticent to do stuff like that right to take on a new hobby or learn new things because eh, you know a we're older and set in our ways and we kind of feel like we know the things that we like and also it can be harder as we get older to to be a beginner again right to to like force yourself to try something new and be bad at something for a while right a lot of us as adults want to feel comfortable in the things that we know and like and are good at um but i think it's so important to have that beginner's mindset and to take to to work that muscle develop that skill over time yeah totally um yeah i couldn't agree more super cool so um after you you know you spend some time at inside.com ultimately actually leading that entire group so i'm curious how you went from an acquisition to overseeing the uh, the entire enterprise
1: yeah, so it sort of happened all at once. So, so I had this newsletter, and um, and I was a part of a startup that was winding down, and um, and so I was trying to figure out what to do next. And inside, um, Jason Calacanis had started it years earlier, and they had been most recently doing this news. Had they had like a, a news uh, curation mobile app, but they had kind of made this decision to um, to focus entirely on newsletters. And Jason was looking for. Um, someone to kind of run it and so we got introduced um through a friend of mine and um and then started kind of chatting and and so then it made sense and then i had this newsletter and it was like well that we might as well kind of like roll that in because the idea was like let's build this network of newsletters and so um and so i joined and we started with um one newsletter and then and then my newsletter read this thing rolled into it and then we started kind of expanding from there and um yeah and today uh, that business is, I'm not, I'm not involved anymore, but the, but the business is still
0: doing pretty well and has um, a whole bunch of newsletters that are thriving. That's awesome. Good to hear. And after inside.com, you founded Capiche, which uh, describes itself as a secret society for power users of SaaS products, which I love. Tell us more about that experience.
1: Yeah. So I think, so, I mean, as we've talked about, journalism has been always kind of a uh, draw for me and the, and a big part of that is the kind of um the the way that journalism can kind of like uncover truth and also like uh remove information asymmetry or solve information asymmetry and um, and then also a lot of my time working in silicon valley has been building communities and um and building user-generated content platforms and things like that and so um those two things were kind of the foundational like what gets me really excited um and is like building community and and like uh helping people put their voice out online and um and then like the kind of information asymmetry thing and and then there was a more much more like acute frustration that I had which is that buying SaaS software when I was running a business, I I came across this constantly with all these different things, a number of them like, well, one is there's these review sites, G2 Crowd, Captera, a couple of others, they all have a purely pay-to-play model. Um, you can find some interesting information on there but you can't really uh the star ratings and those things are all pretty much for sale and so you are just looking at who who paid them the most money when you when you see who
0: uh has the best the best rating and and then um, they have huge was, seo value right so those review sites like totally. always rank at the top when you're doing research for these types of sash products yep right right
1: and they yeah and they get backlinks from the vendors
0: because and there's so
1: so that's how they do so well on seo and so it's mm-hmm. It's that is, was really frustrating, and then like just to learn about pricing, you often have to have to do like a demo call with a salesperson, and so there's not a lot of transparency in pricing. And then I also got to see like in some of the circles that I was in with friends who are founders and things like that, there are a lot of secret ways to spend less money on software than what you're going to pay otherwise, and um, and there's a lot of value in having access to that information, and so basically i wanted to kind of solve this and and ultimately like kind of compete with gartner and with these review sites um, and build something much more kind of grassroots that's like a community of people um sharing the things that are actually useful about like what product is correct to solve is the best one to solve this particular problem or um or like how much are you actually paying for this how much did they try to get you to pay how did you negotiate it um and and like what features actually exist are there Are there features that salespeople are saying are on the roadmap, but that they've been saying it's on the roadmap for three years, like all these different things that, that as a person who has to buy software for your business, um, it's really, really hard when you don't have any insight into it. And so we kind of built this community, um, around those ideas of like, you can ask questions about software. You can, you can do this kind of glass door thing where you just like share how much you're paying anonymously. Um, and then the community can kind of vet those and respond to them. And, um and so the idea was really to like build this sort of almost imdb type of like just a database of everything you'd want to know about um about a software product and um yeah and so spent about 2 years on it and we we raised a little bit of money and um and we built a, a decent amount of traction like a, a, a lot of traffic we um and then the community was kind of growing and but in order to get to the scale that those that those kind of competitors are at the trajectory had to be a lot bigger than it was. And so eventually kind of, it became clear to me, like we could monetize this. It could be this kind of like niche community and there's something cool there, but it's like the actual road to doing what I wanted to do, which was like fundamentally changing the way that this works so that you, so that the vendors actually just like give up their efforts to keep the pricing secret. And um, and so that like anyone can kind of come across this information, I just, it was not clear that we were going to find that we were going to get to that level of like escape velocity and um and so basically then we kind of like as a team we kept we kept kind of working on capiche and um also worked some experimenting with some other products and ultimately then i met ryan um ryan knew the ceo of a company called vendor um that that has since gone on to raise a ton of money and they're really awesome so they started at a similar time to us and they were in a similar space to capiche where but from a totally different angle, so they buy and manage all of your software on your behalf, and oh, that's interesting. Um, so they do the negotiation and everything, so it's a it's much more of like a service. Um, but they're building technology to optimize all of it, and and they serve big companies primarily,
0: and um, and the kind of that's part, you know, so yeah. they can make sure everything talks to each other, and they can make sure it gets implemented right. correctly, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they can share that. They can like yeah, build technology to to know like what actually should you be paying, and to do some like um data understanding of of the you know like the different products that are on the market and all those different things to just help Mm -hmm. companies be smarter about the way that they're buying software and the software that they're buying and um yeah and so they had started at a similar time to us and we before ryan and i met i had heard from a few different companies reaching out trying to um like with interest to buy capiche and i had had like kind of pushed those away because ultimately the main the main like targets for selling what we were building were going to be the companies we set out to kind of uh disrupt, disrupt. and and yeah. i just didn't want to do that it, it just yeah. wasn't interesting because um because then it would suddenly this thing that we put so much love into building this community would would like have ads all over it and be um and lose its kind of purity but vendor is really cool because they, they are aligned with what we were setting out to do in terms of like, we stand on the side of the, the buyer, not the vendor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they also kind of had an interesting reason for wanting to, to own capiche, which is that they want to let it kind of thrive as a community. And they don't want it to be like an aggressive lead gen thing for them. They, they you can see now some of the branding you can see on the site that it's owned by vendor, um, but but, but they think about it in a much more big picture kind of, um, Thing of like if we create goodwill by putting this out in the world and um and like creating that kind of transparency then um then as companies grow bigger like smaller companies vendors product isn't super relevant to them and um and they might need more and so so it's like um, a really good kind of like i guess alignment there and then i really liked uh ryan and so we got to talking and and he made an offer and um and so we sold that business and we're able to kind of like transition it over to them, but keep our entire team together um, to go on and start start a new company. And that was another thing that I kind of was really interested in because I loved the team I was working with and didn't want to kind of like do an aqua hire where we go join some big company. So, um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And Ryan invested in our, in our new company. And, um, and so, yeah, it's like, it, it just was, was a really fun process and, um, yeah. And, and was super cool to,
0: get to know them because, um, because I really, really love what they're doing. Amazing. Gosh, there's so much here that I want to unpack. So we'll take it uh, piece by piece. The first thing before we move off of uh, capiche and vendor, and obviously everyone should check it out because it sounds like it's continuing to grow as this thriving community. But if you had to summarize some of the learnings that you came across in two plus years running that business, what are your general tips or takeaways for people who are trying to go out and buy SaaS products?
1: Well, i have a whole twitter thread about it that that was like one uh it was like a, a thread of fun facts i think this is the most viral thread i've ever had and and fun facts about SaaS pricing so i'm trying to remember like some of the really like juicy ones but um i think mainly i mean i would say the what i said about the review sites don't don't read a whole lot into those and where you find the nuggets of truth are from either direct contact like friends that you can talk to or founder slack groups that you're in or things like that um and then and then also like forums so like oftentimes before capiche i mean and then capiche is still a really good resource but but yeah it's like you have to find the humans out there because and uh, because if you're just searching google you're gonna find the things that were optimized to show up in google and um and so like reddit is such a good source and you have to get good at like sifting through um the because because anyone can post anything on reddit but the but that's where you're going to find humans that are actually talking about their real experience. And, um, and so that's definitely one thing that I think is pretty key. And then I think the other thing is just like every single sales contract that, that every single software product that you buy is negotiable. And so you should negotiate. Um, sometimes it's not worth your time. And so you should just, just like pay the self-service price or whatever. But, um, but if you are worried about it, then you can always push back because, um, you can't always get exactly what price you want, but but it's there are very, very few companies that even if they say that they never negotiated on pricing, like they're very few that actually really, really hold to that. And so um,
0: and so, yeah, always push, I think. For sure. Awesome. And, uh, you know, you had mentioned the uh, pressure washing business in high school. And then, of course, you launched the newsletter business. But it sounds like this was your first time kind of building a company and hiring employees and raising money. So what was the hardest part of being a first-time founder? I mean, everything
1: is so hard about it. Um, and and so hard in ways that the like side projects or like the pressure watching business, it just doesn't even like um, compare. I think it's one thing that's like kind of surprising, I guess, as I'm now farther into it and have gone through raising more money, um, it's like, you can feel like, Oh, if i could just like raise i mean at the start of competition it it probably to me felt like if i could raise seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, like that would be so much money and i would just be like set i wouldn't be stressed but it's like none of the things that you think will remove the stress will actually do it um and so it's it's just hard and i think um the one area that for me has always been really challenging is that you like we often project these things as like being kind of binary of like okay like if this we will build this this business and if it works then great and if it doesn't work then okay we move on but but the most common thing is you end up in a weird middle space where you don't know if it's working or not and you have to make hard decisions about do we keep going in this direction we know it's not working insanely well but we also don't don't think it's failing and so um and so so those are some of the hardest kind of decisions and it can be on the smallest thing of like one experiment that you run where you're, you're hopefully you're going to get a binary yes or no, but really what you'll most likely get is something that's in between where you have to kind of like, um, make the call of like, yeah, the, and so, so that's really one thing that has been tricky for me, especially like when we were going through this kind of question with Capiche of like, do we keep building this, um, do we try to sell it? Do we shut it down and build something else? or And all of those kind of questions. And so, yeah, and it, I think it's once you have a team around you, then there is just this level of like, um, of responsibility that, that just, it can be so fun. Um, but it also is just really, really challenging because you are, um, need to make these decisions. There's no playbook. And, yeah. um, and I think that's one thing I thought before is like, I, I had been investing in startups and I'd been around a lot of startups and seen, and then I'd been like, in a in like a senior role in a startup and like managing teams and stuff and i and so i thought that i like kind of understood the path and the main thing that i learned is like there just isn't a path and yeah and there's no
0: substitute for doing it yourself as much as those other experiences are great and they'll round out your knowledge you have to kind of go through it yeah yeah for sure and um You know, the other thing that resonated with me is the fact that you're on this mission at Capiche to kind of introduce more transparency right and you have this ambition to kind of change the way that things are done. And now there's kind of this culture more around like building startups in public, meaning some people are sharing their metrics very publicly. Uh, maybe even pricing, you know, displaying every deal, every customer they win, salaries in some businesses, they're showing everybody what everybody makes. Um, And, you know, in some respects, there's some really exciting and and awesome elements about that. What's your take on this level of radical transparency that's coming to startups?
1: So, well, the salary transparency thing I think is, is wild. And I do, I do know a handful of companies that are doing that. And then also uh, ones that are sharing their like um, sales metrics and things on a public dashboard. And I mean, I think that's super cool. I don't see that being like a trend that every company does. And I think it's, and so, but I admire it because it's a bold kind of decision to do and to make. And it's, it's also like a, yeah, um, I don't know I mean I'm I'm curious how employees of those companies feel because then because it's sort of their salary is out there as well and um and so I don't know yeah that one I haven't like spent it's that that's pretty different from the types of things that we were focused on and then the um but I think it's really interesting and then the kind of building public thing I think I think a lot of like a lot of the kind of building public movement is like a little bit of marketing around everything it's like you by sharing stuff you can uh build a kind of community around you which is really cool for sure um, yeah yeah and i think but i think that it when it comes to the companies that are that are like at some amount of scale selling like especially enterprise software or any sort of b2b software um i think that the they might be the you might have people like the founders tweeting all the time and talking about all these different aspects of the business but they're still it's pretty rare for pricing to end up being totally transparent. There are definitely like a lot of the more self-service, newer SaaS products, there is more transparency. But even then, there's like discount codes or bulk discounts that that are kind of untalked about. And um, and then and then another piece of it is just like the kind of the way that you use these tools. So so if you look at uh if you were to just like stand over the shoulder of someone who is a like just super power user of Microsoft Excel or Salesforce, or, um, I mean, pretty much any, any software tool that you could imagine. Gmail, even like, if you see a person who really knows how to use Gmail, it's, it's mind blowing to see like what, how different the workflow is from, um, from what the rest of us do. And, um, and I think that applies to pretty much any tool. And so I think a lot of the, what we were trying to work on was like getting that type of thing out there, um, and like helping people, helping people operate more like those power users. And I think that just is more goes much deeper than just the types of like dashboards or things that people are sharing in, in like build in public.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and look, not every business is probably set up to do that. And especially if you're B2B enterprise deals, I doubt your customers would want you to share that information. They probably have you under very strict NDA. So it it's not a fit for everyone, but it is kind of an interesting movement. And I do wonder sometimes, yes, is this just all to fuel the market marketing hype machine, or is this a radical way to kind of ensure accountability and help kind of guide your business by objective metrics. So be interesting to see how that continues to progress. The other fascinating thing about your story so far that I wanna to touch on is you pulled off this incredible feat of landing an acquisition, but keeping your entire team, which I imagine has to be a very difficult needle to thread, right? So how did you how did you pull that off?
1: Yeah, so we, like I said, we had already been kind of like experimenting with some different products. Um, we had investors who were super supportive of us. And then, and then we also just didn't, because of all of those things, we didn't necessarily need to sell. Um, and so we, yeah, I mean, we, that was almost the starting point of the conversation was like, look, we don't need to sell this. We're open to talking about it, especially if it's the right, the right person that's buying it. And, um, but the kind of, I guess from the start, it was sort of like these are stipulations, which which are just that like not that I'm like forcing the team to stay together, but that like, um, I don't want want to if the, if if there was an offer that that kind of stipulated some part of the team or all of the team going to a new company, then every single person, the team would have veto power on that and i and i communicated that pretty clearly up front so like i wasn't gonna just like go to the team and be like hey we sold it we all work at this company now um because it again we were experimenting on new things and really excited about where we could go and so yeah so it was that was kind of just a uh upfront
0: requirement for going down that path which is great right to lay out your expectations up front and then uh yeah, every deal's unique, right? So you found a buyer that was interested in the product that you had built and saw a way to continue to grow that community, but have a nice tie- into their core business. and it sounds like it worked out for everybody. So that's great, yeah, definitely. and um
1: and Matt, who was running community at capiche, ended up he did he, i think did about six months of transition with them. So he onboarded the community people on their side and and um uh, did like just a ton of work to kind of like pass the torch. and um And I think still has been like a a resource for them. And so that, um, that, so we, I mean, we were supportive in every way that we could. We just, um, we just kept our team together.
0: Yeah. And then. Very cool. So let's hear about racket right now, what you're building with the, with the same team and it's an app for sharing short audio snippets. So why the audio space and what was the original inspiration behind racket?
1: Yeah. So, um, like I said, kind of community and user generated content have been my focuses for a long time and, um. I definitely became really bored of the enterprise software space um, after two years in that, and um, and so I like the, I was excited to go work on something really different. And um, an observation that I had had was that like um, when you look at the ways people are creating content on the internet, there are over a hundred million people in the world blogging today. There are over a hundred million people in the world posting content on TikTok today, and there are less than a million people making podcasts and. Um, that's insane to me that like that delta makes no sense because podcasting is like built on open source technology it's supposed to be just this like publishing for the masses and I think what it ended up being is a sort of like almost a recreation of the gatekeepers that existed in, in like radio beforehand because if you look at the top 100 podcasts almost all of them are either hosted by a celebrity or backed by a major company and um and so it's not this kind of like thing that random people are just breaking through like tiktok where you see that every single day a new like teenager who suddenly is a celebrity and um and it's based on the content that they actually produced and um and i think podcasting it's like if you can't it, so there's a number of different things with podcasting um getting started is complicated you have to there's some technical things with figuring out how rss works and creating a, a website for your podcast and going through all the different like directories and all those things. It's like, I mean, if you just look at a list of like how to start a podcast, it's like a hundred steps long and it takes a lot of time. And then, um, the actual like production of your podcast requires like the most successful podcasts have a cadence that they publish on. And, um, and so you have to kind of be able to like stick to that and follow through and uh, editing audio is like insanely hard. It's harder than editing video because you're just looking at waveforms instead of like having visual cues. Um, that you can actually like scrub through and find the thing you're looking for and so editing audio is super hard and and definitely like a big lift and and then after you actually like get through all of that then you launch and 90 percent of podcasts are dead within 90 days and the reason for that is that you start with no audience no content gets distributed the only way the content gets distributed is through a person subscribing to all of your episodes so so no episode can just like spread and like be like the way that one tweet can just go viral and then and then you're back to your same small audience the next day with your next tweet and um and so it's all at the at the show level and so that means that that we all are kind of like relegated to the eight shows that we subscribe to essentially and then we had maybe a couple here and there throughout the year and remove some here and there but it's like it's not that you're constantly hearing different voices and so um and so to become one of those eight slots for a person is is pretty difficult especially if you're brand new and so it's It's a long, long lift. And I mean, you went through it. So I I would love to hear kind of your experience. Still going through it.
0: (laughs) I mean, (laughs) everything you said perfectly resonates. Um, Look, I was in a role at the time where I found myself talking to really interesting people. And I just said, gosh, I wish I could sit down with some of these people and ask them a lot of questions that I'm intellectually curious about. And I wish that I could share this with more people because I think it's so fascinating. And so I started it just as a creative passion project have never made money from this thing. In fact, I lose money on it every year. But it's not about that, right? For me, it's like, I enjoy having the conversations. Um, It's been an an amazing learning and experience for me and networking experience that I'm so happy to do it. But absolutely, it's very challenging. And still, six, seven years later, like my audience is small, but it's a community of people that I know and who I'm very fortunate to hear from them. They're like, hey, I love this episode, or I get a lot of value out of it. And that's why I do it, right? It's like, it's really cool to build that community and share with people.
1: Yep, totally. And yeah, so I think like, that your use case is really awesome. Um, But I think it's just that is limiting the people who, like, have the tenacity and the time and the resources to do it when when there's not necessarily like when it might not be like a source of income. And then and then you do really need to just like keep going forever like i have friends who have pod, who make seven figures a year on their podcast and it's like amazing and they're so thrilled to be there but it's also just a, a like almost kind of handcuffs because it's like you know if you stop for 6 months it like goes away it's just, yeah. yeah yeah you and, and so you have to keep going and um and so i think that those things just are all reasons that it's that it, it is like this limited limited number of voices that are out there in this medium and and voice and um verbal communication is like the most native kind of medium that we have as humans and so um and so i just can't be convinced that that like these are all the people who have something interesting to say out on the internet and so uh, and so what we've been thinking about for about a year now is like how do you solve that how do you crack open the top of the funnel and get lots and lots more voices online and so and we were building a few different things initially we built like a podcasting tool that was super easy so it was on twilio and you would get like a phone number and you just call that phone number and as soon as you hear a beep then you're actually like live streaming and recording and wow and then as soon as you hang up the phone then we we published the mp3 and syndicated out via rss so you've like published a podcast episode as soon as you hang up and that um through doing that we had a bunch of people using it and and a couple iterations of products like that but um and so we made it like unbelievably easy to make a podcast and actually get it published, um, through iTunes, you have to go through the approval process, but on the other directories, like, that's all you have to do. If you just get it out there, then, then it's there and it's published. And, um, but what we realized is that it's like, it comes down to what everything that happens after that, which is that like to build an audience, you need to keep just grinding and you need to keep the cadence up and, and you, it has to be this long process and, and increasingly, It's only possible to do it if you have a big audience to bring to the table. And, and so then we kind of started thinking about, okay, like how, if, if just making it easy to publish a podcast, isn't the answer, maybe the problem is actually that podcasting, the way that the podcasts are distributed is fundamentally not going to let this get better. And so maybe we need to just create a way in the same way that like Twitter, like blogging was this really popular thing, but it was kind of a specific thing. It was like, you kind of typically bloggers would have some sort of publishing cadence. A blog post would typically not be shorter than like maybe 300 words or something. Um, and typically includes like a photo and a headline and like, um, and there's some expectation of a little bit of like editing and polish. And obviously people who broke lots of people who broke those kind of norms, but those, but those norms still existed. And I think podcasting has similar norms of around audio quality and editing and cadence and all those different things, episode length. And, um, and then something like Twitter comes along and it's like, it is blogging, but they didn't call it that. And, and it lowered the stakes, it lowered the friction and the stakes. So it was like, don't think, don't think about like, what am I gonna publish on my blog today? And think about it in this like really grandiose way, just like write words in this box and press send. And what happened as a result of that is that like all these people who wouldn't have gone and bought a domain and set up a WordPress site and and like become a, a blogger.
0: Um, can now microblog from their phone whenever they want.
1: Yeah. And they were just spewing, spewing words out. And, Mm -hmm. and like both Twitter and Tumblr, I think accomplished that in like getting, making it so easy for people to just say something and, and you get then a long tail kind of distribution of like a lot of stuff that's, that is like, um, either just like boring or not, or like uh, bad or offensive (laughs) or whatever else, but, but, but you also get this magical thing, which is that people are just going through the experience of publishing online and they're doing it like, 50 times a day instead of like twice a week. And, and they, it's like just that velocity. Then all, all these people who were like early Twitter Tumblr users are now like published best selling authors and, yeah. um, and became like found their voice as writers by, just by the fact that the friction was removed. And, um, and I think that podcasting is in a similar space right now. And so what we're trying to do basically ultimately after we built a few different audio products and learned from a lot of people that are like, what I would say, podcast curious, where they're like my friends think I should start a podcast, but like, am I really going to do all of this stuff and what will that look like? And, um, and so we've tried to make it insanely easy. So racket, um, it's an iOS app right now. It'll be on Android eventually, but, um, but you can just like press a button and record. You can, we, we have some lightweight editing that you can do, but, uh, but, but we kind of almost like downplay it. So you, so it's like a lot of people are just pressing record, talking, the posts are capped at 99 seconds, which makes it like, more approachable because you don't feel like you need to make a whole 45 minute really compelling thing and yeah and what's been so cool about it is is like all these people there are podcasters using it uh but then there are all these people who have never published their voice online who are having a blast with it like talking about their life there are comedians who are like just testing out material um and all these different things that you don't see in podcasting and and that just kind of um are just the early spark so we launched in the app store less than about like six weeks ago, I guess. So it's like, it's really, really kind of just getting started, but you can see the spark of like creativity and the ways that people are building off of each other's ideas and um, and like taking this kind of medium to another level. And so, um, and that kind of is what has always been from when we started working on audio, it was that kind of, why aren't there a hundred million people publishing their voice online if there are a hundred million people publishing words online? And, like, and
0: arguably voice could be even easier. It's just, there are still these barriers to, to audio. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like, what would it look like to solve that? And, and, and what would the impact be? Because I do fundamentally believe that, that audio is better for kind of creating human connection and, um, and sparking empathy. And I think there's, there's also data that supports this. And, um, and I think part of it is that it's like, it's, it's a less passive experience. So, so watching a movie, you kind of sit back and just Absorb it basically and listening to This American Life or something like that. It's like you don't get the benefit of just sitting back to absorb it because you have to listen and then build a world in your head as you're doing it. So it's a much more active kind of experience. And I think what's exciting to me is like if you could get a social network around audio to scale, then you would be getting taking a lot of this time that all of us spend kind of like consuming social media and turning it to a a slightly more active more engaged experience and um, and one that I think can be more conducive to like human kind of connection. And a lot of the stuff we see on racket is like, especially given how early it is, like people talking about really really personal stuff and um, and being willing to do that sometimes under under like a pseudonym or something. but um, but I think audio with the camera turned off lets people do that type of thing and um, yeah, so so that's Racket.
0: I love it. Yeah, as I was preparing to talk with you today, I was thinking through what are the use cases of Racket? And some of the notes I put were, well, you know, are you attacking microblogging for audio a la Twitter? Are you trying to build the audio equivalent of TikTok and have algorithmic kind of entertainment or uh, educational content? Is it audio messaging a la what Snapchat did or what WhatsApp is, but with more of an audio first interface? Or is this really a tool for podcast discovery? And it seems like maybe the answer is a little bit of everything.
1: Yeah, we've, I mean, there are podcasters who are posting clips from their podcasts on Racket, so there's that, like, podcast discovery. That's not, like, a huge part of it, but we do definitely, like, I definitely think podcasting is broken, but I don't have any qualms with podcasters, and I want to support them, and um, and we are working to support them in, in various ways, and, um, but, and so we want Racket to work for podcasters, but we don't want to build it for podcasters, because my belief is that a lot of the best stuff in podcasting is either in the long tail of podcasts that, that very few people will ever hear, or it's even farther up the funnel in someone's head where it's never even going to actually like get out into, get recorded and get published. And so that's the stuff that I'm like most excited about is like, if we can, um, if we can get to that kind of scale where, where like, you don't have to commit to six years of twice a week episodes in order to to put your voice online and you can just like have one funny thought and go put it out there then the overall kind of body of stuff that and whether it's like wisdom or um or lessons or inspiring stories or humor or anything else like the the overall body will just be so much bigger and so there will be so much stuff that otherwise just would have never made it past the dinner table at some in at some family dinner but instead will be there for um like later generations or we'll just be be there for someone halfway across the world to um to hear and to resonate
0: with very cool and obviously the social audio space has been white hot at uh, end of 2020 early 2021 yeah you know, arguably maybe it's cooled off a bit or there's some skepticism now around you know what clubhouse flew really high and then maybe it started to stagnate what is your take on audio is it a fad or is this the next big exciting movement in battlegrounds I mean, audio just like,
1: I think if you looked at the overall data of people consuming audio, then, and you compared it to the like data of people talking about the consumption of audio or like social audio or whatever else, like you would see this like massive spike of social audio being this thing. And then like kind of a drop-off where it's like cooled off. But the, but the curve of people listening to audio, you might see a blip basically, (laughs) because it's like it, because if like in terms of radio, that's still a massive, massive medium that, that, um, hasn't has like held on in a way that television and newspapers and yeah, lots of other kind of legacy media hasn't. Um, and so there's a lot of that, that, um, that is audio consumption. That's still happening, like at a, a crazy scale. Um, and then in terms of kind of, and then podcasting has just never stopped growing. Like it, podcasting, uh, I think maybe, I don't know about 2021. I know 2020 was, was like, blowout record year for podcasting and and i assume that that kind of continued and so um so i think audio i don't think audio like i don't think that the kind of like hype cycles do a good job of actually weaving through the fact that that like audio has always been here and will always be here um and then in terms of the kind of the actual like hype cycle i think that's in i don't know yeah i mean it's it's it how it impacts us is like well i don't know I guess I would say, I think, I think Clubhouse is really, really awesome. Um, I'm not a, a huge user of it, but I think it's like it again, like these are the things that inspire me are ways that get people to put their voice out there. Um, the live aspect for me is like I said, we, we were playing around with some live products. And so, um, so it's, yeah, I mean, I think that it, that Clubhouse is awesome. And I think that it generally with any of these things, when, when like the hype is, In the favor of a trend or a particular company and it seems like they're completely taking over the world it's it probably is not quite as as rosy as the hype makes it seem and then when the when the hype cools off and and everyone is saying that this is over and it's dead um it's usually not as bad
0: as as that and so um the truth is somewhere in the middle (laughs) yeah Yeah. exactly but now you've got so much competition not for racket specifically but In the audio space, or social audio in particular, right? Spotify Greenroom, LinkedIn's got the audio events beta out now. Facebook's been building a number of products. Discord, Reddit, like Fireside launched. You've got all these, you know, people rushing into the space. um, Much as we saw with short form video, right? TikTok takes off, and all of a sudden, Snapchat rolls out Spotlight. YouTube launches Shorts. Instagram has Reels. Do we just live in a copycat age where it's like, okay, you know, we got to build this because um, that's the next big thing, or? uh, is audio going to be an important component of the way that all future social platforms offer it as kind of a table stakes feature. And we should expect to, um, communicate with each other that way.
1: Yeah. Let's see. There's a, I feel like a few questions in there. So I think, um, in terms of audio specifically, like, I think there will be ways that all these big platforms use it. Um, and there probably will be ways that they rip off smaller, companies and um i mean like twitter of all the companies that tried like a live audio kind of clubhouse feature i think twitter is is the best suited but i also just don't think like big tech companies will always do this i don't i like for me it doesn't necessarily like some people like think that i don't know that really like trash the companies they're like all they're doing is ripping people off but i think that like it's kind of what the internet is it's like the no no nothing is original it's like the news feed and the like button and and the ability to reply to a comment or an at mention or a hashtag like all these things are just things that that have built off of each other and so um is it like sad when there's a, com- a small company that's being like completely steamrolled by a, by a company with way deeper pockets like it can be but i also don't think that it there aren't too many examples that i know of where where it actually led to a zero-sum outcome where where so like instagram stories was insanely successful by ripping off a feature of snapchat but snapchat is continuing to thrive years later and um and so would snapchat have been more successful maybe but competition is competition and and so i think overall like what what never ceases to surprise me is just that the internet is bigger than anybody thinks and so so you might think if instagram stories is successful then how can snapchat possibly live but but then we can see it years later that actually like snapchat has a pretty amazing business they still have definitely challenges and um i don't pay a lot of attention to the maybe maybe their stock stock is in the in the gutter right now i have no idea but uh, but generally like they they didn't die and that was the narrative was if instagram stories works it's going to kill snapchat and i think um it just often isn't the case and so Um, And so I like for how we think about it. I don't think anything that definitely not something that big companies do and, and probably not something that other startups in the space do is going to impact whether or not we are successful, um, because the internet is a big place
0: for sure. So I want to switch gears a little bit as we start to wrap up here and talk about the fact that you and your brother, Stu, who's also a friend of the podcast and has been on the show before, you two have been investing out of a fund called Cough Drop Capital for the past seven years in early stage companies, largely kind of in and around our space, right, media and technology. Uh, how did you get into startup investing?
1: Yeah, we wanted to do it for a while. Um, and we... Did, we knew that like, if we wanted to write to invest in all the companies that we were seeing people start that we thought were awesome, then we were going to have to figure out a way to invest other people's money instead of our own. And so we kind of decided to scrape together whatever money we can and try to do like one deal a year and be very, very choosy about them so that we could try to build some track records so that we could invest other people's money. And, um, and so that's kind of what we did. So the first company we invested in was um, was a company called Lattice that and it it was Stu's former boss at teespring jack was starting the company and so they didn't have a name yet um they had roughly some ideas about what they were setting out to build but but not a ton but we had huge huge confidence in jack and um and they and so we invested they they then went to y combinator after that and um and now are like a billion dollar company that's been growing super super fast and um in the hr space and so it's that was like a super fortunate definitely like first investment to make um and um but we did make a few over a few years and so and with the goal of kind of like raising being able to invest um other people's money and so then eventually we raised a fund that's like a million dollars uh, and then um we are getting ready this year to raise to raise our second fund um and yeah and so it it kind of the reason that we wanted to do it was that we both were so interested in startups and either building a startup or joining a startup, you end up like in this laser focus, you only get to like, you're you're like totally just in that one world. And the idea of having a bird's eye view into lots of startups just seemed so cool and has been so cool now that we have like 30 some investments. And then also just the ability to see, um, like another one of our investments is a bank called Mercury and Capiche, my first company, we were the third customer of Mercury. So So I've always been like an early adopter anyway. So I like heard about them, had been frustrated with Silicon Valley bank previously. And, um, although I don't want to trash them because, uh, because I do really like them, but, um, but I, I like them on a personal front. Um, and they, uh, but I had been frustrated with them as a, as a business bank. And I heard about mercury, um, from a hacker news comment. So again, like going to the forums and things and Imad said, like, I'm building something to try to build better software for banks. And I was like, that seems super cool. I emailed him and he was like, yeah, we're still like, in very private beta, you'd be the third customer. Things are not really like fully um fleshed out, but um, but yeah, you can you can sign on. So so we did. And so I was like the third customer and I loved it immediately. And I could see the velocity and I could see the way I would like send a mod a bug report on like at like six PM on a Saturday, and 15 minutes later, he'd be like, Hey, I just pushed a fix to production. And it's like when you see someone with that velocity, it's that's like, awesome. You want to bet on that person. And for sure. Um yeah. And so I was kind of like had asked him if we could invest he said we're not really raising right now and then eventually he i he asked me to do a diligence call with an investor that they were um that they were raising from and so then i was like hey now i know you're raising um,
0: (laughs) i can't um, escape um, it anymore
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and so so like that just that experience of being the third customer of this thing that was like still being built in front of me and now now they have billions of dollars in deposits um and are are just, uh, and, and have been valued at $1.6 billion. And so it's like, it's a, it is to see something go from like basically nothing to really, really being a thing um, and having a big impact is just so powerful. So, yeah.
0: That's amazing. How do you evaluate your investments? What criteria do you use?
1: So we don't, in terms of like, well, mainly what we're looking for is like, if everything goes right, is there a hundred x opportunity from from here um so we're not super price sensitive we'll invest in something you know like a seed at a hundred million dollar valuation if we think that if everything goes right there's a hundred x opportunity um and and so that's like the main kind of thing where we look across a lot of different sectors and then like but then in terms of how we actually like evaluate the do we want to bet on this on this company it's it comes down mostly to the founders and mostly to like velocity we try to however possible figure, find two dots on a, on a line. So we can see where were they three months ago? Where are they today in terms of not necessarily just like revenue or growth or something, but like anything, like what assumption, how quickly are they, are they like throwing their assumptions out because they, they learned that they were wrong and how quickly are they, um, like just putting stuff out there and, uh, those types of things. Cause in my experience, that's just like by far the most important thing because the velocity it's like. You're very, very rarely going to be on the right path and the fastest way the, the people with velocity are going to be the ones that for, that get to the point of realizing they're not on the right path way sooner and, um, and so I think the. The startups that I've seen that just have like a kind of idea and a vision and just go heads down toward that vision for a long time um, that's where that's where sometimes you're right and it can work really well but but um, but those ones are tougher for me to bet on versus one that might look like it's kind of all over the place but that the the only thing that's always true for them is that they're moving very fast because because then i believe that they're going to figure something out and um and i think that's ultimately what it comes down to is like finding the insight that's going to be the thing that that pushes you and um yeah so i would say that's kind of how we do it we're not don't have a super formal process and like i mean we it's like over twitter dms sometimes like we don't, we don't always do pitch calls with people and um and so sometimes it's like we just see something awesome and message them and say, can we please write you a check? And, um, and so, yeah, we, it's kind of all over the place, but, and we love to, um, to, we get a lot of inbounds. So we've also invested in companies that were completely cold inbound or friends will like, let us know about a deal that they're doing and, and we'll jump into it. So it's a huge mix of, of kind of things, but we don't, yeah. we don't kind of, uh, try to take it ourselves too seriously and think that we actually can predict the future. And so instead yeah. it's like, we just look for one signal of, like, this person is someone you want to bet on.
0: Amazing. Any advice for people getting into angel investing?
1: I mean, it's it's basically that like I, I so I have a, a Twitter thread on this that that um, like that was like how to become an angel investor. If you don't have much money, basically, because that's what we did. And and we did kind of like plan to do it. And it took a long time. We the first the check into Lattice was 2015 and the fund we raised was 2019. So it's four years later that we actually were able to like start writing slightly bigger checks and also pick up the velocity and um and so i think that's the main thing is like get into try to write the smallest checks you possibly can because what matters when you go to raise if if what you want to do is raise money from other people and actually like have a fund the things that are going to matter are what deals did you get into and and at what point not like what were the dollars that you returned um and so like if you like i don't know i mean if you end up hitting an uber and you invested a thousand dollars when you could have invested 10 you'll be bummed definitely later on but um but most of them aren't going to be uber and the and like that's the thing is you want to have just if you can just show that you found one company that uh that really broke out then you will be able to find people that want to bet on you to bet on the next batch of companies and um and so i think it's like taking it slow and then yeah just like it's hard to predict the future so you just have to figure out who's who are the people that i want to bet on that i think like are um are going to be able to like make something happen here and um and then yeah the smallest checks so that you can kind of get a few swings at bat to either if you want to do it kind of your own investing then then like so that you just have that kind of portfolio approach because most of them will fail Mm -hmm. um and yeah and so i think mostly it's like just don't I see a lot of like early angel investors who try to like replicate what they think a VC would do. And they go, they do these hour long zoom calls where they're like asking about all these different things with the business. And it's like believing that you are going to uncover some insight in that process where you're, where you're trying to do like a diligence call the way a VC would that does it professionally and has been doing it professionally for 10 years. Like you're, is naive. And so we need to look at what your special insight is, which might be that you are tapped into networks or that you know something about an industry or that you um like are just have an uncanny ability to convince hot investors or hot founders to let you into their deals or Mm -hmm. whatever it is but you need to look for what that is and it's probably not you kind of um asking the questions you think vcs are supposed to
0: ask because very little comes from those types of of questions (laughs) makes sense great advice thanks for sharing Uh, what's coming next if you had to make three predictions for the future of you know, the audio space, digital media, creator economy, what would they be?
1: Hmm. Um, I mean, audio space, I think, I think that, um, that I, I like, so, I mean, like I said, we've been about a year of iterating on different audio products and we launched racket in the app store about six weeks ago. And I like have just never had more conviction about something I'm building and the, and the reason that we're building it. And so, um, and so it's, it's very early days but um but i really think that we are are going to actually figure it out and and um and accomplish that goal of like cracking open the top of the funnel and getting tons and tons more people publishing their voice online so i guess i'll just go with the generic prediction of that is going to happen the 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 we're going to see an order of magnitude or multiple orders of magnitude more people publishing their voice online i i think there's a good chance it'll be on racket but it might not uh, but i think that the prediction holds either way and then um and then in terms of broader kind of media creator economy um i don't know i mean i think one thing that i've loved about about racket is that we have people who are kind of like creators who would call themselves a content creator and who maybe get paid to make content um but we have lots of other people who never would have used that word content creator and and probably couldn't tell me what the creator economy economy is and it's just like they're having fun meeting people and and like posting stuff and um that to me reminds me of some of the most fun things that i did early days in the internet um like early early tumblr early twitter and then even going farther back to like irc way back in in high school where it's like it's just it's not everything isn't being monetized it's just for fun and kind of like what you're talking about with you what drives you to do the podcast um and so I know that the creator economy, the creator economy inspires me because there's all these people who have made a full-time career out of out of making content. But I think what it led to is this kind of tunnel vision of like every every piece of content that anyone posts anywhere needs to be monetized. And mm-hmm. I think what you lose then is the people that are just like having fun. And, um, and I think that we will maybe see a swing back toward that where it's like, you don't need to monetize every single bit of, work. And that doesn't need to be the focus from day one, because um, a lot of amazing, amazing, amazing creativity comes from people that are just kind of um, following a drive to just to just like, have fun and and post what's interesting to them and connect with the people that that it resonates with.
0: For sure. I mean, we've seen some of the problems that have grown out of the web two era already right creator burnout, feeling like you're constantly on the hype cycle, your friends and podcasting or social media creators were saying, I can't take a vacation because there's no safety net. And once I go away, the algorithms drop my content. And so there's this pressure to constantly perform and constantly monetize every single thing that you do. Um, but I think where we're moving at the Web3 movement is uh, ownership and um, this decentralization structure, which can hopefully reintroduce that aspect of, yes, it is amazing that some people are able to now make a living doing what they love, but hopefully more of us can use these, this platform, these internet technologies to do what we love online and not everything needs to make money for sure. Yep, exactly. So Austin, one of my favorite questions to ask uh, everyone who comes on the show, and you'll have a slightly different take on this since you're just in the midst of working on a new business, but I'm always curious, like, where's the white space? If you weren't building Racket, what, what would you do aside from that, right? What, what are the opportunities out in creator economy, media entertainment right now? Hmm. Let me think for one second. Sure. Take your um, time.
1: I mean, I think maybe one thing that I would say is that I feel like it's, what's been really cool about so much media moving online is, is that the kind of like themes and formats and, um, and like structures of content have been have been challenged in a lot of ways, but I also actually think that like that's only we've only seen like the very very tip of the iceberg with that stuff so so like like t v shows on netflix or h b o or wherever it's like they're all still they've they've challenged it in some ways in like maybe releasing a full season at once or um or like i don't know different things that people are doing but i but it also feels like it's not um pushing the boundaries enough and then again with like podcasting it's like i feel like there's um there's so much opportunity for people to do really creative things with podcasting or with audio more generally um that that just break the mold entirely of what we think of as a podcast or a radio show and um and then same with video video maybe is is where like with at least short form video where we've seen a lot of the of like creative kind of like breaking the mold um but i think all of it to me feels like it's like just scratching the surface and that we're gonna we're gonna see um things that really really kind of flip that on on its head where like our kids will grow up and and when, like when they think of like a sitcom or a show that you would sit down and watch their vision of it might not involve a 30 minute kind of thing or or it might just look totally different than what, what we have in our heads so um i don't know exactly how to fully articulate what i'm saying other than that i just think that there's like that the all the most awesome stuff is like is just in in breaking the mold of the of the ideas that we have in our head of like what media or entertainment should look like, and I think we're going to see some crazy stuff that
0: um, that yeah go, that challenges those things. A hundred percent, right? No one would have predicted we'd have unboxing videos or haul videos, right? None of this stuff would have gotten green lit in an area in an era of um, centralized decision makers with you know all these gatekeepers, and then YouTube comes along and like blows all that out of the water. Yep and we're constantly inverting the models of you know what are journalists talking about or who can create a podcast now so the internet will continue to over time challenge those norms of what is um, video content what is audio content what does a tv show have to be and that's really exciting last question where can people find out more about you and more about racket
1: um yeah so let's see so so racket.com or just search for racket in the app store Um, it's r-a-c-k-e-t like a tennis racket and um and then we also just this week are launching um a thing called podcash, which you can find at podcash.com. that's p o d c a s h.com um and where we're giving away working with a company called Stir and we're giving away um 100,000 in sponsorship to up and coming podcasters the only real requirement is that you have to have made less than $10,000 in in revenue for your podcast since starting it and you don't even have to have a podcast to apply so you can just share your idea and um, and so the, the dollar amounts will range from $250 to $5,000 and, um, and it's like a six week ac- application period. And then we have an amazing panel of judges and, uh, who are going to be reviewing all the applications and, um, and selecting winners so that we can give money because all the sponsorship money and podcasting goes to the like top couple hundred podcasts. And, um, and there's so much amazing stuff that again, as I was saying before that, that like doesn't fall into that and so we're trying to support the the folks that are like just at the point of starting their podcast or or might be into it for a while but but that haven't been able to land sponsorship and so that's podcash Um, and then yeah and then i'm active on twitter i've mentioned a few times today so uh awwstn is my twitter handle and um yeah you can definitely find me there and then
0: my dms are open there so that's the best way to to reach out if you have anything you want to say Awesome. Well, I definitely encourage people to download Racket, check it out. I'm excited to go play around a little bit more. Um, certainly check out Podcast. Uh, you know, now once it's once it's live. And then of course, to connect with you on other social channels. So Austin, thanks again. This has been a blast to hear a little bit more about your story and uh, the exciting stuff that you guys are building at Racket. Thanks again.
1: Awesome. Thank you, James. It was super fun.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.